happened to me recently. I was in Florida with my family uh, on a spring break vacation and uh, someone heard my name but only caught the last part of it, Rodriguez. And they looked at me and they saw the similarities to this other famous figure, Alex Rodriguez of the New York Yankees. <laughs> and instantly, I was a celebrity. And people started to crowd around me. They were excited. They started asking for my autographs, which I was too willing to comply with. I was fed. I was given the best seat at the restaurant. And finally, they wanted to see me perform, so they gave me a bat and ball and said, swing away. And it was then that it was discovered that I was not Alex Rodriguez. It was a case of mistaken identity. There are mistaken identities all the time. You know, it's interesting, my name, Carlos Rodriguez, when people hear that, sometimes they ask the question, is the church service in Spanish? Not knowing that I'm about as gringo as anyone can possibly get. There are other mistaken identities. I heard the story when, uh, when it was Nelson Mandela, he passed away. He was very revered in India. And they declared five days of mourning for Nelson Mandela. And uh, they, they considered him a, a leader in the role of Gandhi. And so there was this one town, Kambiator, India, where the people wanted to put up a billboard to honor Nelson Mandela. And so they put up this beautiful, beautiful billboard with 
Morgan Freeman on it. <laughs> Who they thought was Nelson Mandela. And why wouldn't they? We have the internet. If you remember, Morgan Freeman played Nelson Mandela in the movie Invictus. They just simply thought that he was the one. It was a case of mistaken identity. Recently, Jace Robertson of the Robertson family of Dynasty fame was in New York to film a segment with Kelly and Michael on the Kelly and Michael show and was in the famous Trump Hotel in his camouflage and beard. And when he asked uh, one of the people in the lobby where the bathroom was, the person proceeded to kindly lead him out onto the street and say, have a good day. He mistook him for a homeless man. Luckily, Jace Robertson had uh, a good attitude about things, uh, about the whole situation. But you don't often see people in camouflage and long beards in the Trump Hotel. This story that we just read is a case of mistaken identity. Two people walking away from Jerusalem, heads hung down, maybe walking back home, wondering what happened, dejected and sad. The Jesus they saw was very different than the Jesus who was. So much so that when he came alongside them, they didn't see him. The world often has a case of mistaken identity with Jesus. You can go to the grocery store even today, and there are books from uh, magazines from Time and other uh, uh, publishers asking the question, who is Jesus? 2,000 years later, there are documentaries that perhaps you saw that are consumed with this question. They can't seem to get a handle on the identity of this person. Well, I want to suggest to you that everyone must travel the road to Emmaus. That this lifetime is actually a journey that we must take. And we must ask and answer the question, who is this one, Jesus Christ? But I want to suggest to you that it's only with eyes of faith that you will begin to see the living Christ. It was Augustine that said that understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. You see, when it comes to Jesus Christ, when you believe Him, you will see Him. For believing is seeing, not seeing is believing. Well, what must we believe, you may ask? From looking at this passage, I believe we must believe three things to believe in Christ. Number one, we must believe who He is. Who is this person? We must believe who He is. Then finally, excuse me, number two, we must believe why He came. Why did God come and walk this earth? We must believe who He is. We must believe why He came. And finally, we must believe why He came back. What is it that caused this one to be raised and to be standing with these two nobodies on a dusty road to Emmaus? Jesus did not come simply to bring us salvation. He came to bring us himself. And so we must believe who he is, believe what he came, and believe what he came back. Well, let's take the first one, believe who he is. And so we see these two people walking along the road. And they are dejected. We know a little bit about them. One of them is named Cleopas. We don't know who the other person is. But we have a clue in 
in John 19.25. We're standing at the cross of Jesus, where Christ's mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clovis, and Mary Magdalene. Now, Clovis is a derivative spelling of Cleopas, and so it's led some scholars to conclude that the two people walking on the road is the wife of Cleopas, who was there uh, with the other Marys at the cross, as well as Cleopas. Either way, it's very clear that they were intimately uh, involved with the events that had occurred. And so since Mary was there, she would have seen what had happened to Jesus. The scourging, the crucifixion, the mocking, the spear to his side, the death, and the taking down of the body. And Cleopas here in verse 24 says, Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. Notice the words, with us. You know, there were the 12 disciples, but there were a host of followers as well, the 72. And so in that upper room, there were more than simply 12 people. That Cleopas was with these people as these people, as the disciples went out. They were intimately aware they had been with Jesus for many years, perhaps, for the three years of his ministry. And now they were going home. Well, why were they going home? Dejected, frustrated, beaten down. You could hear the sadness in their voice. You could hear the shuffling in their feet. The reason they were dejected is shown in verse 19. And so on. Jesus says to them, what things are you talking about? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And they describe this one that they are dejected about. First of all, he was a man. Jesus of Nazareth. He was a man who was a prophet. They saw him as one of them. He was a man who had been sent by God. A prophet was one who spoke the word of God. And he was mighty in his word and his deed. You get the sense that he was a real leader. He was their leader. A man who was a prophet. Mighty in word and deed, but as verse 20 says, that our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. In other words, he's dead. But here are the words, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped you ever use those words? We had hoped that the result, the screening, the conversation with the doctor would be different. We had hoped that our loves would be returned. We had hoped that the things that we had dreamed of would come to fruition. And they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Remember that Israel has been in captivity for other 400 years. Captured by the Romans. The Romans, they were a vassal state. We don't understand what it means to live under the thumb of another government. But they were, the Romans said where they could go, where could they, they could stay, what they could do. Their money belonged to them. They were under the thumb of the Romans. But it wasn't always that way. There was a pride of the Israelites. They remembered that God had called them to be his people. And they had glorious leaders like King David, even the period of the Maccabees. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. 
Remember this word, redeem, it means ransom. Back when Moses was sent by God to redeem Israel, to bring them out of slavery, to ransom them, to give them freedom, to make them a new country. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. See, really, at the, the bottom line of this is they see Jesus and they see Moses, and they think they're the same. Jesus is sort of Moses 2.0, if you will. A man chosen by God to free them from external oppression. But it didn't work out, did it? The reason they did not recognize him is because they were not expecting him to come back. He's dead. He's gone. In fact, these occurrences that happened that day were really befuddling to them. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us because they came back saying that he was gone. Imagine that. Indeed, they said that when they did not find his body, they went back seeing a vision of angels. See, they believed that Jesus could save them while he was alive. But nobody can save you when you're dead. And so it didn't even occur to them the possibility that Christ could be alive. That's why they didn't recognize him. But Jesus spoke multiple times during his ministry about the very fact that he would die. Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It's all over the place if you really take a look at it. In fact, even the enemies of Christ believe this. Matthew 27, 63, they said, Sir, to the, uh, to the uh, Romans, remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days I will rise. So put a guard around the tomb. The enemies of Christ even knew what he said. And yet these disciples didn't recognize him because they saw him as a man. He's defeated. He's guarded. Moses went ahead and was able to accomplish. He was never killed, but this one was killed. And as they looked around, they said, nothing has changed. All our hopes were dashed. But they didn't understand that Jesus was not Moses 2.0. That he was fully God and fully man. Not simply a prophet who heard the words of God, but God himself who had come. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This one, Jesus Christ, part of the Trinity, was God, equal to God. He was there from the beginning. Before there was anything, there was Jesus Christ. In fact, it tells us that Jesus Christ made the universe. All things were made by Him and for Him. The point of the entire universe was for the Son. And indeed, He sustains everything. I don't know if you've ever studied, you know, the cosmos, the planets, how big the universe is. This one, Jesus Christ, is the one that put it into motion and sustains it in its orbit. He is the one that sustains the very cells and the circulatory system of your body. He keeps the earth from blowing apart. This is God in the flesh. 
But they didn't see it because they were looking for someone else. I heard a story about a man named Joshua Bell. I don't know if you're an aficionado of classical music. Joshua Bell is a violinist. Even from a young age, he was a prodigy. Uh, at age 14, he performed with the Philadelphia Orchestra. He made his debut at Carnegie Hall at 17. He's a Grammy Award-winning uh, conductor and one of the best violinists in the world. The violin he plays is a Stradivarius worth $3.2 million, and he can make that thing sing. Well, a friend of his who was a columnist at the Washington Post convinced him to go ahead and go to the L'Enfant metro station in Washington to dress up sort of as a vagabond type guy, put down his violin case, and play for 45 minutes or an hour and see what people did. You know what's amazing? And they have a video of it. If you go to YouTube, you'll see it. There's over a thousand people that walked right by him. Only 17 stopped to hear this virtuoso play. He set out his, uh, his, his case as he played his $3 million Stradivarius, and he managed to make $32 in an hour. How is it that people could not recognize one of the best in the world as he played this sonorous music filling the metro station? They didn't believe it. Regardless of what they heard, why would someone like that be in a place like this, looking like that? And so they were overcome by the noise and the cacophony of the metro station and their own cares and worries. And they didn't recognize the one who was among them. They saw Christ as a man, these two disciples. And I wonder, how do you see him? He's a teacher. He gives us principles of leadership. He's Jesus' CEO. He shows us how to serve and how to do good deeds. Yes, he's a teacher. Or maybe he's an advisor. It's like one of those people at the back of the newspaper, you know? The one with the super high IQ, and you can ask him a question and he'll give you an answer. Maybe he's more like an angel. He's a special person of some sort. He kind of shows up. You know, like in the, in the TV show, when you really need him. Or maybe kind of like Santa Claus, you know? When you really need a pick-me-up or a gift, he shows up. But for most of the time, he's just this doddering old man somewhere in the North Pole, doing something before he comes back again. The people on the road to Emmaus saw him for who he was not. But we must see him for who he is. <clears throat> Don't look for a man. Look for the God-man. Fully God and fully man. Don't look for an angel who can give you maybe a little bit of help. Don't look for Christ among the dead. But see Him for who He is. The God of the universe. The one who made you. The one who is timeless. The one who can conquer death because He is Lord over death. Believing is seen, but until you believe in who he is, you will never see him, even if you walk right by him at the metro station. Realize who he is, but this brings me to my second point. We must realize why he came. 
Look at verse 25 as Jesus hears that lament about the passing of this man, the prophet. Jesus said, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What an interesting phrase. Was it not necessary? Not was it not optional? Was it not a good plan? No, this had to happen. What you describe about this Christ dying on the cross, it had to happen. And furthermore, it wasn't just a man that had to do it. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? It's not enough for a man simply to stand in, even a good man. But no, it was necessary that the Son of God would come and suffer these things. What are these things? The betrayal, the misunderstanding, the mocking, the crucifixion, the death, the derision, all of the things that happened to this Christ as he suffered, was it not necessary that these things would occur? What Jesus is saying is, my friends, this is the plan. Not a departure from it. This has been foretold from the beginning. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, because of the Jewish understanding, that means the whole Bible, the whole the Old Testament. He begins to trace the story throughout the entire Bible, beginning from beginning to end, showing them everything was pointing to him. And everything was pointing to this. The Bible is a story, the greatest story upon which all stories are modeled. That Jesus is shown, every story whispers his name. That he was the substance of every Old Testament sacrifice ordained in the law of Moses. He was the true David, the true deliverer and king. He was the true Isaac who was sacrificed. He was the true Jonah who gave himself up to death that we might be resurrected. He was the true deliverer and king. He was the coming prophet. He was the seed of the woman. He was the king into whom the people were to be gathered. He was the true scapegoat, the bronze serpent, the lamb, the high priest. All the stories pointed to him. There are many passages in the Old Testament that speak of the glory of the Messiah, the king who will reign forever and ever, who rules with a scepter of iron, and the government is on his shoulders. But there are many passages in the Old Testament that speak of a suffering Messiah, speak of his crucifixion, excuse me, his rejection, his humiliation, his death at the hands of wicked men. And they couldn't reconcile the two, so they just got rid of one. I wonder, maybe we have trouble reconciling those two things. I want a conquering king. I want a glorious one, but a suffering Savior, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe Jesus is just a suffering Savior, you know? He had compassion and he died, but surely he can't be this glorious king. Jesus is both. Jesus 
spoke multiple times. They couldn't reconcile it. Why did it have to be this way? Why was it necessary? This is the verse, I think, that sums it up. Hebrews 2.10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of this salvation, their salvation, perfect through suffering. In bringing many sons to glory, this plan of Christ from the beginning was about bringing sons to glory. Sons and daughters. Who's he talking about? He's talking about you and me. See, the truth, my friends, is that we were made for glory. In the image of God. I think we have a sense that there's something wrong with the planet Earth. You know, it's like we are walking around with rags as beggars, and we seem to be discontent with that. For we were always beggars, we wouldn't know anything else. But if we were kings and queens, the clothes wouldn't fit quite right. We're unhappy in this world because we've lost our identity. We've lost our favor with God. Because glory cannot be earned, it must be bestowed. I want to suggest to you that everything you do in life is an attempt to achieve glory, either by being recognized for it by your Heavenly Father or accumulating it yourself. But the truth of the matter is that it is God who must bestow glory. Shame must receive punishment. Why do we hide ourselves from one another? Why did Adam and Eve? Because we're ashamed. We're ashamed of what we've done. We're rebels. And so shame must receive punishment. And so it was it not fitting that the glorious one would exchange his glory for our shame, that we might shed our shame and be clothed with his glory. I remember when we made the decision to adopt Maria. We felt God's call. We felt an inner urging in our hearts. And so we went to Nicaragua. And we went down in this canyon, in this valley where there was this orphanage. Middle of nowhere, it was a dirty, muddy place, sort of like forgotten. And we saw this little girl. She had no status. Nobody cared for her, aside from her caregivers, who were very kind, who were overseeing 30 kids. She had no identity. The name was given to her when they found her. She had no future. She would be there until it was time to let her go, and she would end up on the streets, and she would be abused and eventually die. But when we saw Maria, we did not see her then. We saw who she was meant to be. She was meant to be beautiful, important, had a name, an inheritance, a plan. She wasn't meant to live down in this canyon. She was meant to live in a beautiful house, cared for, a future. And so we created a rescue plan. We planned, and we planned, as my wife swayed over document and document. And we prayed, and we paid. 
money and money and money to ransom this child. We paid with our heart as we longed for the one we called our own. We planned, we paid, and we stayed. Our wife had to stay 70 days in Nicaragua until they let us go free. I remember driving away and seeing my wife, who I had to leave. There's no way Mary, uh, that Maria could possibly understand right now the plan that was put in place to ransom her, to redeem her. But one day as she gets older, we will explain. And she will see the love and understand her importance, that somebody loved her so much that they would pay so much to get her. See, that's what Jesus is doing in the story. Little children, don't you realize why I came? To bring you glory. To replace your shame. To elevate you to who you were meant to be. See, your whole life is a search for glory and beauty and fame and recognition. So what's your plan? Where are you going? It's my looks, Carlos. It's my body. It's my clothes. I'm trying to make myself presentable. I will achieve glory and splendor, for I will be beautiful. And the crowds may think so for a while. The crowds are fickle, aren't they? My career, Carlos, I've worked hard. I'm achieving status. I'm known as a big wheel in my company. The future is mine, so they tell me. And they may worship you in the beginning, but in the end they may shout, crucify him, crucify him. As the crowd turns on you. See, no matter how hard you work, you cannot receive and be restored to the glory you were made for. The Christ came to bring glory. So not only recognize who he is, recognize why he came. He came for you and you, and it was necessary that it happened this way. It was glorious that he would die. How do you, can you understand this? You can listen to me, but you can also read the scriptures. As Jesus opened the word and he said, look, here's the plan. He's left us a map, a living map showing us who he is. And somehow this word that is spoken by Christ through his Holy Spirit in the scriptures awaken our hearts to his love. Because when you believe him, you will see him. For believing is seeing. So recognize why he came. Read the scriptures and believe in that. Belief is acknowledgement of who I am, my sin. Belief is acknowledgement of who he is, his lordship. And believing in the gospel is submission to his kingship. He makes me glorious. Because I am His, and He is my King. Well, this brings me to my third point. We can see and believe why He came. We can understand who He is. But the question I want to answer as we finish is this. Why did He come back? I mean, here we are on the road to Emmaus, in the middle of nowhere. We don't even know the two names of these people. Should he not be with the high-profile dignitaries? Should he not be proclaimed 
fact, why do I need to get on? You just show up, you know? It is finished. It's done. Here I am. And back to the Father. And yet Jesus is here in this little road of these two people. He's there because he came to bring hope. They're dejected. They've lost hope. To Jesus Christ, there's no such thing as a nobody. Jesus did not come to save the world. He came to save his children. He came to save his people. Well, Carlos, how do I know that I'm one of those people? It's simple. Believe. My sheep hear my voice, says Jesus. He came to move them from despair to hope. My disciples, my children, things have been made right. He came to bring hope, but he also came to bring his presence. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he was going along. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is toward evening. It's very impolite for Jesus to simply say, I'm going to stay with you. No, he needed to be invited. But they invited him into their home, and they ate with him. To eat is to accept, to say, I want you to be with me. Was it not Jesus that said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. And so he stayed and he ate. Jesus came to bring his presence. We are the goal. Jesus did not come to bring us simply salvation. He came to bring us the goal of salvation, which is he came to bring us himself. Restoration is all about reconciliation. It's all about relationship. So he came to bring his presence because he came to bring love. I love the last part of this passage where we see that Jesus is blessing and breaking the bread. Jesus is the guest. He shouldn't be breaking the bread. He should be just around the table. How did they know? Their hearts were burning. And somehow, they felt the presence of a Savior. You know, it wasn't the truth of the Scriptures that convinced them. It wasn't His very presence, for He was with them for a while. No, it was when he blessed and broke the bread and gave it to them. And they recognized the sacrifice. They saw the nail marks. They saw the scar. The reason they recognized him is because he gave his life to them. And in that moment, he showed them a picture of the love that he gave to them. As Jesus said, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, we need something greater than truth. We need love. And so Christ, as he did from the beginning, the Son of God who created the cosmos, serves them. We are on the other side of this meal, aren't we? The meal has already been given. The cross has occurred. The resurrection has happened. Does not Christ 
walk alongside us by His Holy Spirit. It had to be this way. It was necessary. But I've done it down the line. Open your hearts and let me in that I might be with you. Recognize who He is. Believe what He came. And rejoice in why He came back. Jesus did not come simply to bring us salvation. He came to bring us Himself. For they are the same. When you believe in the Him, for believing is seen. So seek not to understand that you may believe, for understanding is the fruit of belief. And when you believe, then you will truly understand. That's my hope and prayer for you today. Let's pray. Lord, I so thank you that you came back for people like these nameless folks on the road to Emmaus. Simple people who didn't get it. Lord, we could have just passed it over them. They can't figure it out. But Jesus, you came to give them hope, to give them love, to give them yourself. Christ, if you say that if anyone hears your voice as you stand at the door knock, if anyone invites you in, that you will come in and be with them and take up the throne of their hearts as Lord and King, the bestower of glory. I pray that not one person would leave this place before having bowed their knee to the one that gave his life, his glory for our shame, that we might exchange our shame for his glory. All of these things, I pray in the glorious name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.